it was another thing of news about the saw doctors and it became something just something that people talk about it wasn't really important to us I remember Ali Jennings ringing me and he said Tony's after winning the lottery and I can't I can't explain this but I wasn't surprised doesn't make any sense I know but for some reason Tony was the kind of person that money went towards or something I don't know Hello there and welcome to the long-awaited Saw Doctors episode of An Irishman Abroad with me, Jardeth Regan. My chosen charity partner each week is Jigsaw.ie. With Sonia O'Sullivan a year ago, we made a commitment to run 2,000 kilometres across the course of a 12-month period and I am almost at the 1,000-kilometre mark. I would love if you went over to my iDonate page and donated something there, the Jigsaw Centre for Youth Mental Health in Ireland is doing extraordinary work and continues to do it and tries to cope with the phenomenal jump in demand for their services since the start of the pandemic. Come with me on the runs. We've had a pop-up event this weekend at Tara Hill in Meath. I'll be doing more of those and of course you can listen to the whole thing on the Irishman running abroad every Tuesday but that's not what today is about. Today is about the Saw Doctors who Uh, I don't know how you wouldn't know of the Saw Doctors. If you've lived in Ireland or abroad for the last 30 years, they are, as they describe, a group of songwriting musicians from the west of Ireland, hell-bent on celebrating, observing, recording, and sometimes poking fun at their own locality accent, idiomatic use of language, whilst dressing their songs up with their favourite sounds and styles from the years of musical fandom. They are more than just a band. For so many Irish people abroad, their energy, life and the art that they've produced has been a lifeline to home during some of their darkest times. The experience of going to a Saw Doctor show is like no other. And across the years, they've toured the world, performed at the biggest festivals there are and played to thousands upon thousands of people. I mentioned 30 years because this album, If this is rock and roll, uh, I want my old job back, is 30 years old this week. They've re-released it along with a beautiful illustrated uh, accompanying book that I'm holding in my hand right now. Uh, Leo Moran sat down with me to discuss the journey, the life, the road, the band, how it all came to be, writing the songs, what the pandemic has done to them and much, much more. You can hear that much, much more very easily. The first half of this interview is here and available for free everywhere on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you're listening to your podcast right now. But of course, we have to keep the lights on at Irishman Abroad. And the only way that I've been able to do that is through the kindness, generosity and soundness of our members over on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. That's patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. This is a crowdfunded podcast now. So everyone that heads over there kicks in a fiver a month couple of clicks get access to all of our episodes we're talking eight years of episodes the full back catalogue is available to you in return for that small little donation each month and as a result you will get a huge amount more from Leo Moran here today I mean the second half of this interview is where the real fun stuff happens now the first half We'll give you a sense of it, but you do need to hear the rest. So pop over to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. You can download the app and it's all there available to you. Free to download and carry with you wherever you want, whatever episode you're into that particular week. Uh, I won't delay any further. 
it's the Saw Doctors episode of An Irish Man Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Leo Moran, it is fantastic to have you at last on the Irishman Abroad for the for the first ever Saw Doctors episode we've put together. And what a moment to do it. I'm holding in my hand if this is rock and roll. I want my old job back. And when I held it up to you on camera, you said the old reliable <laughs> was how you referred to it. I mean, y- you must feel so much emotion with this record because you know it is the defining piece of work from your life and it's from this point that you know you've built all these memories yeah when i looked through the list of songs on the album they were just so reliable (laughs) to us Uh, so many of them you would play any night we played and you could be sure that they'd get a positive reaction from people Mm. And they really were the the platform and the springboard for a run of ours that we did constantly for 25 years and absolutely loved it, traveling around, I won't say all over the world, but plenty of parts of the world and making friends and making friends. And yeah, I mean, I do want to talk about that, uh, that part of it and that connection that made the Saw Doctors so a part of life for the Irish abroad specifically and how it tapped a nerve, it reached a part of everyone's heartstrings that even those at home who had people abroad recognised that this this is meaningful to those away from home. But before we get to all of that, I wanted to talk about maybe the the defining gig before all of that for you as a person and as someone who falls in love with music, would you agree that that was seeing the Boomtown Rats New Year's Eve in 1977? Oh, yeah, I think so. Our My friend's uh, father brought us and it was brave of him at the time because the Boomtown Rats had become associated with uh, with violence and, you know, the, the kind of hype that goes around the punk thing at the time and Bob Geldof had just been on the Late Late Show and been outrageous and arrogant and opinionated and uh, we just loved it obviously when you're young (laughs) we were young teenagers at the time and that's the kind of stuff you love 
Yeah, you, you, you said you were hooked on it. Now, I think a lot of people don't know, like, I mean, how would people know exactly what this felt like? But that Ireland at the time, 1977, you're 13 years old. You're literally the perfect target audience for this because it must have felt like quite a grey, windswept place. And then this kind of, you know, fuck the system, flip over the table, do what you like attitude comes barreling in the door and must have been like irresistible. It was unbelievable that it happened at the exact right time in our lives. It was just perfect timing, really. And it was irresistible and it was so exciting. Like, And the whole thing about the punk thing was everybody could have a go at it. You didn't have to go to, to music school or music lessons or anything. It was just grab it and go. Like, And... What I loved about the the gig was I'd been to shows before. I'd been to different kind of concerts, but this concert was like the circus coming to town. It was it was our circus. Mm. It was that excitement of this big top of energy. It wasn't a big top, but it was this like this energy being set up and this celebration of do it yourself rebelliousness and uh, energy and aggressiveness as well, of course, which is part of your part of your life at that age yeah it was just i you just think god i just love to do more of this how can how can more of this be part of my life and then obviously the the ultimate would have been to actually go and do it yourself which would have been beyond our wildest dreams at the time but it would have been there i imagine in the back of our minds i mean i don't think there's a person listening to this who doesn't have that show um, that that gig that, uh, you know, goes into your vinyl, that is you, that's imprinted on you, Leo, that experience of music having that effect. And I guess it becomes kind of uh, the goal to someday, as you say, to be the person up there bringing that experience and that emotion to people in the crowd. Was it just a case of, I just need this in my life. Yeah, it was It was an extra part of an excitement. It was like the apex of your excitement level in your life. And what what happened was I saw Blaze X rehearsing in the youth club and I knew all the lads in the band. They were all three, four, five years older than me. And I just couldn't believe that this was happening in tune because to me it was it was the Boomtown Rats, it was the Jam, it was the Ramones. And here it was being done by these lads I knew, you know, played played a bit of soccer with in the schoolyard or whatever. And here they were doing it and presenting it and being exactly in the same mode as all the stuff that I was loving from the different places. Like, as you say, seeing those lads up there that you've played football with who who are around and about the place, like heads, <laughs> as they say, around the town, was there even a, a whisper of, I guess, for, you know, kids now that are into rap music, that for a while it felt weird Irish people doing rap music. It felt like ah, that that's all of another place. And I guess Irish people tend to, in the beginnings of these kind of movements, think, what are you thinking doing that? you know sure that's that's a london thing or or did it just work as a a thing emerging from the west of ireland 
Did it make sense? Or was it at all a reach for Blaze X? The strange thing about it was it was it made complete sense because they did it in their own way. They did it with the with their own accent and they did it with their own style and they did it in the west of Ireland with their own van. <laughs> but you know, it's like all the little elements of it were were distinctively west of Ireland, even mm. though the the style of it was punk. Yeah. And funnily enough, the two lads that, that did the singing and actually three of the lads and Paul, the drummer as well, Paul Kniff, was uh, 20 years dead this week. So we remember him a lot this week. He was the singer with Davy Carton. But three of the lads were born in England and we often wondered was the fact that they had English kind of roots or, or English, uh, some kind of something in their childhood that threw them towards the punky kind of thing, you know, that the same kind of community that John Lydon would have come from. Yeah, sure. The trio that you do form with uh, Mary O'Connor wasn't, you know, it wasn't your attempt to be the new Blaze X, was it? You you had a, there was a different vision for what that trio would be and how it would eventually morph into the Saw Doctors itself. Yeah, there was no vision at all, really. It was using the the assets at our disposal. Mary O'Connor was Davy's neighbour and an absolutely brilliant singer. And Davy had gone back to factory work and there were these songs lying around that Blaze X had and some Davy had himself that it looked like nobody else was ever going to hear them again in the world. So Myself and Davy and Mary O'Connor started getting together and taking out these songs again and polishing them down and doing our own versions. So it was just really um, a structure that we put together or just a gathering of the three of us because we love these songs and we thought maybe it might be nice if people heard them. And that was really the ambition uh, at that stage. You said that uh, you realised early on that you weren't making enough of a racket. And those are your words. What did you mean by that? And was it actually a thought that like this needs to make more sound? It needs to be a bigger wall of sound for people to take notice. Yeah, we, we as a three piece, we did gigs and I was I was just playing a bad acoustic guitar and Davy and Mary were just singing. So that's what I refer to as not making enough of a racket. There was no oomph in it. Mm. And not just the guitar playing was bad, the technology was bad as well. So we do we did think, God, we better get bass and drums and you know, think back to what Blaze X did and what we're doing. It's we're not even uh, not even thinking back to Blaze X, but we just felt we needed something to to um, entertain people better. Where were you entertaining people? Like, again, it's it's sometimes hard for people to think about that time in Ireland, especially when we think about Galway and Tume now as these hubs of entertainment and the arts and culture. But like, where were you doing gigs and who how many people would be at them and how would they even work? Well, we weren't doing many gigs at all, of course. <laughs> We did get asked to do a, the gig we did uh, was was in the hotel and it was a sit down proper listening gig, which was great. It was a Tune Theatre Guild fundraiser. And then we did a couple of gigs in the pubs where we found that we weren't uh, loud enough. 
we got a support slot to the men they couldn't hang in the Warwick Hotel. And again, just couldn't fill the stage, couldn't fill the sound. Mm-hmm. And um, that was, we didn't do a lot of gigs. It's a good question. Well, um, they're the only two I can really remember. I'm sure we did a couple other ones. But we knew it wasn't, it wasn't filling the, the room, you know. So this is obviously when Terps and Porrick Stevens uh, come into the picture. And, you know, I always think that every band has that period like the Beatles had in Berlin, where they learn to run a room to kind of get their chops and the sense of this is how gigs go when we are humming. What was that period for you? What were those rooms? And when did it start to feel like, oh, I can see this work and I can see these boys together filling these spaces and doing this on a consistent basis? Yeah, it was a little bit later than that. Mary recorded Davy's song All I Ever Wanted with us and then she went off to England and Porrick had been backing over and what really happened then was I was working in Machnes at the time in Galway and Porrick was knocking around and we were getting the songs together and Terps was with us and I was the bass player. I always wanted to be the bass player. JJ Burnell was my childhood hero. That's the kind of thing I wanted to do. Mm. And when, when I started a band, when we started a band originally, my friends and McHugh's, I wanted to be the bass, the bass player, but Mousy took up the bass. And the first day he took it in his hand, he was able to play the bass. So I had to learn how to play the guitar. <laughs> but when the sound artists came around, then I got the bass because we didn't have a bass player. But what really happened was, Porrick said we should do a residency in the Keys Bar. And we had all the kind of mockness people we were working with as a kind of a renter crowd, they would come anyway. So we, we got the Keys Bar on a Tuesday night for six Tuesday nights in a row in the middle of winter in like this this February, say, of uh, 88. And that's really when the band started to sound like it could entertain people. Yeah. And and, that's, and is that where Mike Scott sees the band? Yes, Mike Scott and the Waterboys are out in Spiddle at the time recording Fisherman's Blues. And they used to come into town and have a session or have a drink or whatever. And Mike came in and saw it and he said, oh, I like this. We're going to be doing um, an Irish tour was coming up. It was huge. The Waterboys were mm. so exciting, so new, so different. They had moved into a phase where they were taking on country music and gospel and folk and making it loud and beautiful. And... That, at that stage, we got invited to go on their tour. And we thought then, again, we're not making enough of a racket. Maybe we need somebody else in the band. So we asked um, Derek Murray from Donegal, who was the guitar player in the Stunning, great friend of ours, played with us for years. And he recommended Pierce Doherty to play the bass. So I, I said to Derek, is he good now? Is he a good bass player? And Derek said, well, he's so G. Now, I actually know Pierce a little bit and uh, he does seem like the type of character who who did Suchi. Uh, no, Derek's fit, judgment was spot on. He yeah. fits in perfectly. But I wanted to ask, yeah. though, that, as you say, that is a huge moment. 
we don't have this album that I that we're celebrating now without that moment of Mike Scott and the Waterboys asking you on this tour. Yeah. There had to be a part of you that was a bit like, oh, shite, I, are we able for this? Because this is... Absolutely. Yeah, so so this is a, ahead of them asking you to come with them to the UK for the next six weeks after this tour, uh, which is obviously a big move towards professionalism and there's bank loans involved at that point. This This moment that Mike Scott says this, is there... Uh, is there any hesitation in you guys and is there a band meeting around this? Well, I'm sure there was a band meeting, uh, but th- there was no hesitation, no. Davy was the only one really with, uh, Davy had kids and a uh, job at the time. Mm. But even that, even going around Ireland was no threat to that because you could c- come and go on the one night if you had to. And uh, Pierce was in college, so it was a bit difficult for him because... He, he's uh, his uh, he was in science and he was going to find it a bit tricky. But he, at the same time, he was going to go ahead and do it. And our first gig was in about a week's time, so we did a, a warm up gig in uh, out in the Beach Hotel in Salt Hill. And Pierce played his first gig with us at that stage, and you know we were very under rehearsed, and our first show with the Waterboys was in Cork City Hall. Do you know Cork City Hall? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a bit bigger than the Keys. It's a little bit bigger, <laughs> all right. There had to be a certain amount of intimidation. and there ha- There's always someone in a band who's more nervous than the others. Who was that person? <laughs> it, was, uh, it was hard to believe it was Pierce, but you couldn't blame him it being his second gig with the band. <laughs> After the first gig, after the first song we did, you can hear Pierce on the tape saying off mic, but not off mic far enough because he wasn't used to used to that kind of thing at the st- at that stage. He said, Jesus Christ, I'm shutting myself. <laughs> <laughs> Mid gig. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was the um, that was the stage we were at. And obviously it was huge. I remember that the stage in Cork City Hall is raked as well. We'd never come across that. So we're, it's almost like you're standing on high heels <laughs> watching, looking out at this vast arena that you've never never played that kind of thing to before. But funnily enough, we were filling the, the sound at that stage. Mm. We were actually making the racket that we needed to. Now, let me ask you this, because I guess I kind of hinted at it, and I guess it's the... It's the dynamic of the band. And, you know, I've talked to Tom Dunn and people like that about this. You know, every band has its own kind of family to it, right? There's, it becomes, it becomes a place where nobody can ever really fall out eventually because, you know, you can't disown people from the family. It just is the way it is when we figure it out. Was that always the way? Because clearly... The friendship and the bond between you guys is so deep now that it's hard to even put into words. But at that time, you're still very much growing up. You're all, Pierce certainly is growing up. He's still in college. Does that uh, process of growing into a, a functioning band, because so many, you know, fail in that growth, is that easy or is that hard for you? Did you mesh well early 
and realize this friendship can go on and on and on? Or was there, you know, your your difficult kind of oasis years where people aren't getting on? No, we always got on. Obviously, we had a few squabbles along the way, but we always got on and we always were up for a laugh. Everybody, everybody was up for a laugh. We had so many great laughs and we did soldier a lot of stuff. I mean, the next the next phase then was the British tour. And that was a real uh, campaign mm. because we rented a little blue camper van. Davy and I went down to uh, Hackney to pick it up. And we told the man there that we were students and we were going on a tour of the Lake District because we didn't want to say we were bringing <laughs> this camper van on a rock and roll tour around Britain for six weeks. <laughs> and uh, I remember we went down to the yard in Hackney and we were walking past all these fantastic big white Winnebago's and you know, those camper van things. Mm. And then down at the very end of the yard, there was this this little blue Volkswagen camper van. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> your one is down here, lads. <laughs> I mean, that is like the van is a whole nother realm. In fact, Tom Dunn talked to me about on our selection box, which is our arts and culture podcast about a new documentary coming out that is specifically about the van <laughs> get in the van is the title of the documentary i would imagine that as he said this tour of the uk with the water boys is a tour of duty and you're seeing things and doing things and under an amount of pressure you've never seen before and that that's as you say the, the if you can overcome this if you can get through this there had to be a sense of well jesus we can we can definitely do this long term yeah, it was it was so much fun. It was the most exciting six weeks of my life. Like, you know, we were going to these venues that I'd been reading about in the NME and Mel- Melody Maker. And here we were going playing in them and with the water boys, even better. Like, yeah. And uh, not alone was there the five of us in the van, but Davey started off being the only one with a license, being the only driver. So after about a week, we realized the workload was a bit tough on Davey. Uh, I used to say he was the hardest working man in rock and roll. <laughs> so, so Ollie Jennings, who had been giving us a hand with the getting things together and the loan and all that, he said, why don't you call Paddy O'Neill back here in Galway? And he'd love to go over and drive the van fee. So we did, and Paddy arrived. But that meant there was six of us in a Volkswagen transporter van. Mm. Now, the water boys were bringing the gear for us very, very kindly. And then they said one of us could go on the crew bus each night just to take, make a little bit of room in the in the camper van. Yeah. But it was still, still five men, a bag each, and uh, trying to, trying to find somewhere to lie down uh, was was a challenge. And if you got somewhere, you could, you couldn't leave it because if you got out, it would disappear. Like you know. <laughs> yeah. And deodorant wasn't a huge thing in those days either. Oh, deodorant was a was a, a far away ambition at that stage, and everybody smoked as well. Everybody smoked except me. So the air in the van was blue all day, every day. Like. And we had this, we had a small fire. A, a, a punnet of chips went on fire, and somebody set off the fire extinguisher, so that that dusty stuff was all over the van for the last three weeks. And oh god, yeah. It wasn't a pretty sight when it came back from the student tour of the Lake District, I can tell you that. <laughs> I mean, 
it's obviously the making of you in so many ways, because <laughs> what happens after that is, you know, other opportunities come up to support other bands. And, you know, in as much as that residency gets you used to the idea that, hey, we can do this, this idea that you can go to places, which is so, you know, a part of the Saw Doctor story is the, you know, you're inseparable from the idea of showing up in a town and bringing together people who appreciate you and specifically Irish people. Did you feel that becoming part of the identity that like, hey, we are a touring group. We we do this. This is something that we do at that point. Or was that only to come when you were headlining? No, I think after we had done the Irish tour with the Waterboys and then the British tour, we thought, God, we can do this. Like, And and for me, always the main currency of being in the Saw Doctors was the gigs. That was mm. my, the, that was all I really wanted to do was do more gigs to more people. That's That was my, my philosophy, my aim. So we did take it one step at a time and... We never really thought two steps ahead. It was like, what's next? What's the next best thing we could do at this point in time? Mm. And uh, for me, like I said, if, if more gigs, if possible. So obviously, to get more gigs, you have to get better known. So but we were at that stage now after coming back from Britain, definitely uh, a band. So obviously, we're at that point where in the story where I guess it's around... 89 is it august kind of well, i don't know is that yes. 89 90 89, march 89 we came back from britain in august mike scott helps the band produce their first single n17 uh, a song everybody will know about an irish emigrant longing to be driving on the n17 road in between galway and mayo do you remember the first time you heard it and was it a bit like one of those songs that's under the radar or was it one where it's you know it hits you like a bolt from the blue and you think we're gonna dine out on this one for a while the first time i ever heard the song played in public uh, was probably the week we wrote it and we went up to the Hermitage Hotel, there was a front bar that used to have a late bar and there was a disco at the back. And we used to be down in McAvoy's playing sessions in the earlier on. Significantly, we didn't play N17 in McAvoy's. And we brought the guitars up to the Hermitage and took them out and started playing. And then we somehow decided we'd reveal this song we were working on, even though we were probably a bit embarrassed about it because... Who would really want to hear a song about the Galway Road? <laughs> yeah, true enough. And it's going to sound a bit stupid, but <laughs> we've written it, so what can we do? Only play it. And I do remember Davy starting to sing it and getting to the first chorus and people tuning into it immediately. Really, really? First on yeah. first play? Yeah. And um, that then, then we weren't embarrassed about it anymore because... People liked it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we knew then. W- once you have a song that works in front of any audience, you're, you're, um, you know it's going to work. In fact, if you have a song that works in front of your own people, you know it's going to work anywhere in the world. Sometimes 
you'll get away with songs that aren't that great. You'll get away with them abroad or amongst people that don't know you that well. But you'll get away with nothing amongst your own people. Mm. So it's it's the ultimate acid test when you play a song and and it's liked at home in your home. You know then it's going to work anywhere. Why is that? Well, I think people know that you're being honest and true to yourself and that they want you to be your best and by by liking what you're doing they're acknowledging all those things I think that's it the first half of my conversation with Leo Moran from the Saw Doctors and what a chat this is so much more as I said to talk about in the second half of it another 40 minutes of conversation about the journey about the life about the songwriting about the tours about the uh, the gas the crack that they had along the way and exactly what not preparing a roadmap for Irish artists has done and what Leo thinks needs to be done to restore uh, life and to inject that sense of hope which is essential to the Saw Doctors themselves for our country and for our creatives and artists head over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad and as I said for the price of a pint you can support me in continuing to create this show I literally can't do it without you.